Nassau. So we come to the last phase of our 10-day ten, ten cycle, the final phase of cultivation of equanimity. where we seek to engage in a type of expedition that is getting our feet extricated from ruts that they've fallen into. And these ruts are called in Sanskrit vasana, vasana, or in Tibetan bhakcha, habitual propensities, habitual propensities, just habits, habits. In Mahayana, Mahayana Buddhism, if one asks what is a, a root cause of suffering, Right, there's so much distress in the world internally and in, and in our interrelationships with others. It's called self-centeredness. Self-centeredness. Where one is really focused primarily on one's own well-being, valuing that, cherishing that above the well-being of others. And in fact, valuing others' well-being only relative to one's own. And so one's own spouse or one's own girlfriend, boyfriend, family, one's own community, cherishing them, but not others. And so basically, like a gravitational field, in the center is me, that is my well-being being most important. If there's only one little, one dessert left there, and Nicola and I are both coming up, <laughs> it's quite clear who should get it, because it's my favorite dessert, right? And so I make sure that I I kind of edge in a little bit in front of him. And he quietly, nonchalantly just, ah. The universe is in order. I got it. His, it was more important for me to get. Because I'm more important. How does that happen? This self-centeredness. This self-centeredness of not only self, of course, but also I and mine, and that is my family being more important than the next-door neighbor, my town more than the next town, and so forth and so on, the Buddhists more than the Hindus, and, and so forth, all of those, all around self and, and the relationship of I and mine. And I suggest that a, a major insight into this can be gleaned from this ever-so-simple statement from William James, for the moment what we attend to is reality. And if we simply apply our introspective abilities, monitoring, where do our thoughts go? Where, do, where does our attention go throughout the course of the day, the 18, 16, 18, 20 hours a day, each day that we may be awake, let alone our dreams? What occupies our thoughts? What occupies the attention? And what's occupying the attention is what we will to take to be real. It doesn't mean that it's more real, clearly not, but it is what we'll take to be real of importance, of value, of significance. Take it seriously, that which we attend to. And those things that we don't attend to, we may not just flat out deny that they exist altogether, but we're really not taking them very seriously. They don't really count. right? And so just as a simple kind of statistical issue, over the course of, let's say, you're sleeping 25 hours, or how much would that be? So 18, no, 17. 19. Oh, never mind. However many hours you're awake, look at the proportion, the percentage of the time that's focused on me. My thoughts, my hopes, my fears, my friends, my family, my, everything with my in front of it. 
And if you find that that is overwhelmingly the preponderant area of interest, of focus of attention, then it's no wonder that we're cherishing that, that we take that to be most important. Because that's what is real for us. So if we want to know the root of self-centeredness, we may just look where our attention goes. And if it's focusing mostly on me and mine, then it's no mystery. And they and theirs winds up just kind of fading out. So what to do then when we see these tendencies? Because clearly it is a profound problem. I think there's a very deep meditation we won't do right now, but simply reflecting at length, using our intelligence to really consider what are the effects of leading a life based upon the premise that my well-being is more important than others. And I think it really becomes quite clear. It's a source of enormous distress. It sets us in conflict with virtually everyone out there in the world. Seven billion people, let alone all the animals and so forth. Because hardly anybody agrees. Maybe one does, but not likely. Maybe some extremely devoted spouse says, Oh, honey, your well-being is more important than I. What can I do for you? In other words, you have a doormat. You know, a what a codependent relationship. So that's hardly something to idealize. But apart from that, then nobody agrees from you. No, nobody agrees at all with you. You're at, at variance with everybody on the planet, which is a massive out, out-voting. So what can be done? Well, one thing that can be done is the practice of four measurables. And what this entails is a kind of reconfiguring. It's a developing of new habits. A developing of new habits. If we recall that the really the essence of this equanimity, especially in the Mahayana context, is to attend to others without the knee-jerk, I-it responses of I like and I don't like. Attachment, hostility. Attachment, hostility. And then boredom, neutrality, indifference. And then attachment, neutrality, boredom, and hostility. Insofar as we habituate ourselves to looking especially upon other people, just in that way, just, you know, just somebody walks in the door and the first is agreeable or disagreeable. You know, attachment or aversion, or eh, whatever. Reject. Wait for somebody who's interesting. Oh, well, you're really disgusting. Okay, you're interesting. You're in the reject. You're, you're in the negative. Vibe. Oh, you. Ah, hi. Welcome. How are you? What can I do for you? In the attraction pile. Well, maybe you can do something for me. You know? And so if that's kind of the habit of as soon as we look at any other person is agreeable, disagreeable, or boring, then that's a habit. That's simply a habit. And what we're attending to is, of course, how does this person appear to me? Pleasurable, pleasurable, displeasurable, unpleasant, or neutral, not interesting. Like that. And so that's one way of doing it. That's making a habit of I-it relationship. So it becomes very lonely that way because you're the only subject around and everybody else is an object. It's kind of lonely, kind of alienating. And so to break down that habit, then we practice loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and finally the grand finale of looking through. There's no doubt that some people appear more agreeable. Their, their whole appearance is more agreeable. Their way of behaving is agreeable. Some people have beautiful voices. You just want to hear their voices. And other people, it sounds more like a crow. <laughs> I wish you would just write notes back and forth. You know? So there's no question, that's going, to happen, that's going to happen indefinitely. People will simply appear. You know, their voices, their mannerisms... 
attitudes, behavior of all sorts. It just, it's going to be going on for, for as long as space remains and as long as sentient beings remain. Some will appear more agreeable, some disagreeable, and some you know, not so interesting. So there it is. And so we can either maintain that rut, that, those habitual propensities, which leaves us inevitably in responding to other people with craving, hostility, and indifference. Or we can go beyond the superficial life, look beyond appearances, both inwardly and outwardly, because, of course, we can do the same type of, how do you say, dehumanization, objectification, I-it relationship with ourselves. That's really... I, I don't think the Tibetan... I've never heard any Tibetan talk about that way. That we can actually itify, objectify, dehumanize ourselves. But I think it's quite clear that that is possible. That's where all the low self-esteem, self-judgment, self-loathing comes from, of developing an I-it relationship with yourself. And then, of course, other people, self-infatuation, narcissism, and so forth and so on. You know, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's more cool than me? Nobody. Wow. So, so to break out of that rut, because it's just, it just means that samsara will go on forever. That's why when I first started learning meditation, went to Gisharapan, that was one of the two meditations. He said, okay, do this, because this, this breaking up, he told me to practice equanimity. Because it's this, this way of relating to others is I like and I don't like, attachment aversion. This is the root of so much suffering. Start working on this right now. And years later, years later, that was like 1971, many years later, I think it was 78 or so. 78, when I was a monk with him in Kapishuni. He made some statement like, oh, I really like this person a lot. He looked at me. What kind of way of talking is that? I like, I like. They're sentient beings. That's that's the really that's what's really important. Not oh I like this one. That means you oh you like this one better than this one. You're supposed to be a monk. Did not did you not understand what that's about? Because it means you become homeless. It becomes you attend to everyone equally as much as you possibly can. So one way to reconfigure is to deliberately generate loving kindness, attending closely to the subjects, entering into this I-U relationship with each one, right on through the four immeasurables, culminating in equanimity, which is what we'll do in a few minutes. So there's the developmental approach. There's a lot to be said in the developmental, really getting in there and working with your mind, reconfiguring the mind, developing new habits, new perspectives, transforming the mind. There's a lot to be said for that. For the first 20 years of my training in Galupa, really when you thought about the whole path, it was Lamrim, stage regeneration and completion. That's pretty much it. You now you have a few little accessories like mind training, lojong and so forth, but they pretty much fit in, they fit in Lamrim. They fit into, inside of it. So Lamrim, stages of the path, stage regeneration, stage of completion, your Buddha. Any other questions? And, you know, and that sequence, that's pretty much 100% developmental. The Lamrim is pretty much like 100% developmental. Right? All the way through. Stage regeneration, massively. Big time. Massively transforming the way you view yourself, other sentient beings, the environment, and so forth. And stage of completion, a massive reconfiguration, like it's, a, it's an extreme makeover of your whole prana system. You know, the nadis, the pranas, the chakras, the whole thing. It's a radical makeover. And it's a lot of work. It's very, very hard work. So that was my understanding for the first 20 years. 
And it's, it's a powerful path. And it's worked. I mean, it's been successful on many, many occasions. So many, so many people have profoundly transformed their lives, their lives, their whole way of being through such practice. But, not the only way. So, for example, in the practice, let's start weaving these together. In the practice of settling the mind in this natural state. To what extent, this is a real question, I'm going to, if you don't raise your hand, then I'm going to point my finger at somebody. When you're settling the mind in its natural state, to what extent are you getting in there and reconfiguring the mind, transforming the mind, the kind of thoughts, the emotions, desires, the mental afflictions? To what extent are you getting there and shaping the mind? To what extent? Yes, Catherine. That's right. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. You are... Go ahead, Katinka. She's very good, isn't she? It's true, but I also said you're right. So it reminds me of a... Sto- Go ahead, Kay, you have something to add. There's what? So now we have three voices. Reminds me of one of my favorite stories of an old Jewish rabbi. <laughs> and you're going to have to hear it. Because I've got a captive audience. You're really not supposed to leave. <laughs> old, wise Jewish rabbi, Eastern Europe, many years ago. And he was the sage for the whole village. It was very common. And so he was the arbiter, he was the judge, he was the wise man, he was the holy man. And one of the villagers came to him and said, Rabbi, my neighbor is trying to cheat me. He's lying about the border between his land and my land. And if he comes to you, you must know he's lying. He's completely trying to cheat me. I, this is where the border is, and I'm right. He's completely wrong. So don't let him fool you. And please judge in favor of me, because this is where the border is. The rabbi says, oh, you're right, very good, you're right. The next day, the other neighbor comes in. He says, rabbi, I think my neighbor's been here, but he was lying to you. The border's actually over here. He's completely deceiving you. He's trying to deceive everybody. The man is a liar. This is where the border is. And I should be having a bit more land. He's so pleased, you know, side with me. The old rabbi says, oh, you're right, you're right. The man goes away happy. In the meanwhile, the rabbi's wife is listening in on both conversations. And then she comes over a little bit upset to her husband. She says, rabbi, we can't be both right. The first one said the other one's a liar. The second one said the other one's a liar. They said exactly the opposite thing. They can't be both right. The old rabbi says, oh, wife, you're right. You're right. <laughs> so, Catherine said, you're not trying to transform the mind. And Katinka says, you are trying to transform the mind. And Kay says, you're not really trying to transform the mind, but it transforms anyway, just by being false. <laughs> and you're right, you're right. <laughs> now, if I chose my words carefully, which I try to do, but I don't always succeed, the question was, to what extent are you seeking to transform the contents of the mind? 
in that regard, then Catherine's correct. That is, whatever comes up, whatever comes up, happy thoughts, unhappy, mental afflictions, awful thoughts, disgusting images, sad memories, ridiculous fantasies, whatever's coming up, emotions and desires, you simply observe its nature. And you don't try to meddle with it. You don't try to modify the contents of the mind. You let it be. And in letting it be, and whatever comes up there in the space of the mind, you allow something to occur, which is really quite wonderful. And that is to the extent that you can attend closely to whatever is arising in the space of the mind without grasping. Something occurs which is called rangdel, and that is the thoughts, the mental afflictions, and so forth, the cravings and the hostilities, they release themselves. It's said like a snake that's tied in knots, that if you just give it enough space, it will unravel itself. Right? And so the mind resolves its own neuroses, it resolves its own fixations, its own tightnesses and constrictions, if you simply attend to it without distraction, without grasping, the mind heals itself in a very deep way, without your having to be clever. And there's a lot of cleverness in psychology, and that's a good thing. And there's a lot of cleverness in, in Buddhist mind training, and Lojong, and Lamrim, and so forth. Cleverness is a lightweight term, a lot of wisdom there. Shantideva's Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, a tremendous amount of wisdom there of how to transform the mind, overcoming anger, overcoming self-centered, and, and so forth. How we can get in there and intervene and transform the contents of the mind, the impulses arising in the mind, all that has its place. It's very valuable. And, not but, in settling the mind into natural state, we can watch the innate wisdom of the mind, the innate sanity of the mind manifest as these fixations, the ruminations, the coagulations of the mind melt away, dissolve, release themselves, and your mind then dissolving into the substrate consciousness. Now, in order for that to occur, one really does need to maintain the flow of mindfulness without distraction, without grasping. And that doesn't come naturally. What comes naturally is daydreaming and cognitive fusion and getting carried away by everything that comes up. So in this regard, Katinka is exactly right. We are seeking to transform not the contents of the mind, but the way we are attending to it. Right? Now that's, and that's, as you have all think, I, I think you've all learned, that's not so easy. That's not so easy. And a couple of you have asked just today, in doing this practice, how do you know whether you're doing it correctly? How do you know? Because it's so important to have that confidence when you're doing it right, to know you're doing it right. Otherwise, you could leave here at eight, after eight weeks and say, I'm still not quite sure when I'm doing it right. I'm not quite sure. And how are you ever going to get any inspiration when you don't really know, and I'm doing it right? You know. And so, it's subtle, this practice. Because although distraction is fairly straightforward, you're either on the object or you've drifted away, the grasping is a very subtle gradient from really strong grasping, like, oh, I don't like that, or I wish that would stop. That's grasping, or I like that one. That's very, that's very obvious. That's grasping. But in, as you're observing the mind, the events arising in the mind, if you're simply aware of them and you recognize them for what they are, you recognize anger as anger, memory as a memory, a mental image as a mental image, a desire as a desire. Is that grasping? Well, to the extent that it is, it's not a problem. Do we need to label it though? Do we need to project our categories, our labels, and so forth? No, that's more grasping than necessary. 
So in fact, the practice is simple and we good to keep it that way. And that is simply attending closely with discerning intelligence. You will non-verbally and non-conceptually recognize what's coming up and just be present with it. And as much as you can, not to prefer to have a desire or aversion for anything coming up, not to latch onto and to superimpose a sense of I and mine, as much as you can, just be present. When you're doing that, are you doing it perfectly? Probably not, but are you doing it perfectly enough? Because as I've mentioned to a couple of you already, what's most important in the practice is, are you going in the right direction? Not did you do it perfectly. On stage one or two, what's going to be perfect about that? Right? Not a reasonable expectation. But when you're practicing, and without moving, let's just do it for ten seconds. Just observe the space of the mind and its contents. And if you sense, I was present, I was relaxed, some thoughts came up, I noticed them, I wasn't carried away by them, I was just aware of them, that's good enough. That's good enough. And good enough will get better as you become more and more adept. Good enough will get being, will get eventually terrifically good. But just by doing it good enough all the way through. So, I think is absolutely right. And that is, we are transforming through this simple practice. We are transforming the old habituation of just allowing the mind to be distracted by one thing after another and grasping onto and totally fusing with everything that comes up. I'm thinking this, I want this, I feel that, I remember, I, 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 you know? So that is definitely a transformation, but it's a transformation doing almost nothing. And that is, we're just being present. Now, we are doing something. We are focusing on the space of the mind and its contents. Once we're doing that, though, we're doing almost nothing, except for just being present, which is then not doing so much, it's just being present. And then we're doing something in the sense of monitoring with the introspection, monitoring the flow of attention, and then recognizing when laxity or excitation has arisen, and then we do something. Yeah, then we apply remedy. So that's doing something. But we're not doing much. So in this regard, then, K is right. And that is a real transformation that's taking place, but overwhelmingly it's taking place through a passive attendance a passive mindfulness of what's taking place in the space of the mind, rather than lunging in there and trying to transform, accepting and rejecting and so forth and so on. So it's very much in the spirit of Mahamudra, in the spirit of Dzogchen. It's not yet Dzogchen. It's just shot. Anybody can do this. With no Dzogchen view, no Dzogchen meditation per se, and no Dzogchen way of life. And there is no Dzogchen without all three thoroughly integrated. That's just a fact. There's no Dzogchen meditation without Dzogchen view. And so all three to go together. Where shamatha doesn't require Dzogchen view, it doesn't entail Dzogchen meditation, and it certainly doesn't require a Dzogchen way of life or conduct. So shamatha is a floater. You can give it to a Christian, it becomes a Christian shamatha, Hindu, Taoist, agnostic, and so forth. So coming back to the major point, though, and that is when we're simply attending to the space of the mind and its contents, we're not getting in there and trying to reconfigure it to develop new habits of thought. Are we developing new habits of attention? Yes. But in terms of the type of thoughts, memories, images, and so forth, no. Just being present with them. Even desires and emotions coming up. Just being present with them and letting them rise, play themselves out, dissolve back. 
and allowing from some much deeper source, deeper than our own intelligence, deeper than our own learning, allowing from some deeper space, kind of a wellspring of sanity, a healing power to arise and to set the mind in order so that it can melt and melt into the substrate. Now, when your mind has dissolved into the substrate consciousness, is your mind now free of, truly free of habitual propensities, habits? Oh, no. Otherwise, that would be nirvana. That would be Buddha nature. It's not. It's not free. But they've largely gone dormant. Not 100%, but they've largely gone dormant. Your mental afflictions have largely gone dormant. Not 100%, but largely gone dormant. The five obscurations, sensual craving, ill will, mm, laxity and dullness, excitation and restlessness, and then finally debilitating uncertainty, five obscurations. They've gone largely dormant. Like you went into hibernation. So that doesn't mean that they're no longer there, but they're not active. And just in the deactivation of these old obscurations, these old habitual propensities for mental afflictions, it feels so good. Bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality. Just their being dormant feels terrifically good. Getting a good night's sleep feels pretty good. I mean, just going into the substrate consciousness when you fall deep asleep. You don't really feel good when you're there because you're not really feeling anything because you don't know anything. You don't even know you're asleep. But when you wake up, you feel, ah, oh, that was a good night's sleep. I was knocked out like a light. Or whatever. Boy, I was gone. Boy, that feels good. So retrospectively, you kind of thought, wherever I was, it must have been good. I wish I knew why I was there when I was there. <laughs> you know? Because it must have been good because I felt really bad when I fell asleep and now I wake up and I'm like, well, I feel really fresh. That was a good night's sleep. Wish I could have been there. So, something happened. Something happened. Now you might recall in the Theravada teachings when they refer to this bhavanga, again, which I will say is the same as the substrate consciousness. They refer to it now in these extraordinary phrases as originally pure, originally pure dimension of consciousness, nature of clear light. And some will even say it's the wellspring of loving kindness, that nature is loving kindness. So it's happened to a few people. You never can tell who it's going to happen to, but it does happen periodically that people will just be practicing mindfulness of breathing, for example. Nice, simple, neutral practice. I mean, you're focusing on something that's neither virtuous nor non-virtuous. It's just the sensations of the breath. And then they start settling in, the mind getting really calm, really loose, still, clear. And then, sometimes when they come for the weekly meetings with me, so happy. Ah, I had some really good days. And on one of the days... sense of unconditional love came up. I wasn't even meditating on loving-kindness, but just this enormous wave of loving-kindness came up. And it was so authentic. I'd never experienced it before. And it came, it was just, it just came up. And it was so wonderful. And it wasn't developed. It just arose. 
It's coming from a deeper space. So there's the complementary approach, the discovery approach. It's not which one's better, because that's it's not a it's not a meaningful question. But is it is to see that on the one hand, as meaningful it is to really transform the mind quality by quality, attenuating the mental afflictions, cultivating the virtues, like the four measurables. There's also this round of just releasing your mind into the substrate, where these habitual densities are largely dormant, and finding, oh, there's bliss I didn't cultivate. I didn't, I didn't do this bliss. I'm not responsible for it. It's just flowing up. And the clarity, the radiance, the luminosity. I didn't cultivate that. I discovered it. The silence of the mind. That was there all along when it wasn't covered by the veil of noise and grasping. And that was there waiting for me all along. All along. When I was going outwards for bliss, I was ignoring my own birthright. When I was going outwards for stimulation, for thrills, for excitement, I was ignoring the natural luminosity of the mind. When I went out seeking peace and safety and security, ignoring the peace and the safety and security of my own mind. Going out, running after symbols, running after mirages, running after people and places and objects. Now, everything that I was always seeking, all right there in my own mind, when it's unveiled, unobscured. So discovering that. And then beyond that, to break through, texture, to cut through something that is rigid, something that's ossified, something that feels very firm, and that is the encapsulation, the coagulation of my mind, my substrate, my individuated stream of consciousness, located in space and time, and breaking through that, cutting through that, texture, to pristine awareness and finding there, there's the wellspring of all virtue, the wellspring of all happiness and a dimension of awareness that's never been tainted. So that's a big discovery. And seeing that just by tapping into that one thing, then all virtues flow. And all the Habituations seem to simply melt away in the face of this light. It's like a volcano of light that just comes up and dispels all the darkness of habit, the configurations. It's all gone, all the shadows gone by this one light. So that's a very straight path. So as we return to the practice now, I'd like to do something that would be on the face of it, similar to settling the mind in its natural state, and then not. And that is, we'll go into the practice, and after settling, then I invite you to turn your attention to the space of the mind, and whatever arises in it. But instead of attending to the images as images, thoughts as thoughts, and so forth, as you just open the doors of your mind, open, like, welcome world, my mind is open, you may come in, see who comes to mind spontaneously. It could be a staff member, 
It could be somebody living, somebody dead. Somebody who's close, somebody you've hardly even remember, but they might just drop in. You never know who's just, what appearance, what person, what appearance of a person will come in. In settling the mind, you know full well, you simply attend to the appearance as, a pers- as, as, as an appearance. It's not a person, it's just appearance. And you allow that, dissolve, that appearance to dissolve back into the space of the mind. But now when an appearance of a person, any sentient being, comes to mind, now step out of the mode of settling the mind into natural state and take that image and look right through the image to the person that that image represents or indicates. That image is a sign, a nimitta, a nimitta tsema. That image is indicating, it's suggesting. Like, just like if you see a photo of your mother, oh yeah, I remember that's when she was 16 years old. So that refers to, there's just, it, I, my, my father has such an image, a photo of, of his wife when she was 16 years old. And so that's what she, oh yeah, and then he can remember back. I wasn't there, but he can remember back. Because you know, they dated from the age of 13. <laughs> one date. I mean, you can imagine one date. <laughs> It just went on and on and on. <laughs> so there it is. But there's this beautiful young woman, 16 years old, and my father can look at that, and then his mind can go back 70 years to the beginning of romance. You know? So he's not thinking about an image. He's thinking about that woman that he knew then and has known ever since. Long time. 70, get it going on set, yeah, 70 years, more than 70 years. And so whatever comes to mind, then take that image as a sign and then direct. It's almost like this way, this way, you know, this way. And then direct your attention to that person, whoever it is, kind of this choiceless, kind of open. And whoever it is, attend and then bring that person to mind. Invite that person is now directing your attention to the person and focusing on that person. Focusing as closely as you can, attending closely, making real by attending closely. And then bring the practices of breathing out and breathing in together in the practice of Donglen. And as you breathe out, just breathe out the wish. May you, like myself, be well and happy. And breathe out that breath of joy, breath of loving kindness. As you breathe in, breathe in with the aspiration may be free of suffering and causes suffering. In and out, in and out. Now, just one caveat before we jump in. And that is, there's some, there may be some times when you're feeling kind of heavy psychologically. Maybe a little bit depressed, a little bit out of sorts, a bit unhappy, for one reason or another. Whatever reason. On that occasion, then, the notion of kind of breathing in, in any connotation of breathing in someone else's sorrow, their distress, their mental afflictions, may seem a bit heavier than you are ready for. In which case, there's a variation. May as well share it now. I didn't make it up, at least several hundred years old. And that as you're breathing in, imagine just breathing in the blessings of the enlightened ones, the great bodhisattvas, the great realized beings, and just breathing in their kindness. And then as you breathe out, then as if you're a fulcrum, a funnel, breathe in the blessings of the enlightened ones, and then breathe out and focus. May you be well and happy. And do that for as long as you feel like. Let the appearance fade back into the space of the mind. Rest it once again. And see who comes knocking on your door. And then attend to that person.
at your own pace, your own leisure. Bearing in mind this wonderful word of wisdom of one of my own cherished teachers, again, Lausanne Gassel, Buddhist School Dialectics, 1974. When he said, when I asked him, how shall I under, understand all sentient beings? Because it boggles the mind trying to think of that number and that diversity. And he said, oh, don't worry about that. Let all sentient beings be simply whoever you meet, whoever you encounter, in person or by way of your mind. Whoever comes to mind, that's all sentient beings. And if you evenly feel that sense of loving kindness and compassion for everyone you encounter and everyone who comes to mind, that will do. And when you're a Buddha and you're actually aware of all sentient beings, then you're already set. Right on the right track. So, enough rambling of me to find a comfortable position. And now we don't need to speak so much during the session. I'll try to speak just enough to help give a little bit of framework, but not overwhelm you with verbiage. Let's begin by establishing equilibrium, the balance of the body as you settle it in its natural state. The balance of the breath, the dynamic balance, as you allow the body to take in just as much breath as it needs and to give back just what it doesn't need. Let the body breathe without intervention. For a little while, establish the equilibrium of your mind, of your attention, free of excitation and laxity, calm and clear, by way of mindfulness of breathing.
then with your eyes open or closed as you wish. Direct your attention to the space of the mind. For just a moment, settle the mind in its natural state. Establishing this flow of mindfulness without distraction, without grasping. Then shift over into the meditative cultivation of equanimity. As you simply observe who comes to mind, what appearances of people, of sentient beings, come to mind. And as soon as someone comes knocking on the door of your awareness, Open the door and attend closely. Welcome them in as you attend not to the image but to the person by way of the image. Which is what we do during the waking state as we engage with each other. We are seeing bodies. We are seeing forms. We are hearing sounds. And by way of them we attend to each other. Do so now. the best of your knowledge, attend to this person's joys and sorrows, this person's hopes and aspirations. And breathe out your aspiration of loving kindness. Breathe in with the aspiration of compassion.
at your own pace, release this subtle grasping, this benign grasping. Let the appearances fade back into the space of the mind and see who comes up next. And practice as before. If at any time your mind simply starts to wander, it probably will, then apply the remedy as you did in the settling the mind practice. Relax, release whatever it captivated, carried away your attention. Bring it back to the present moment. And see who comes knocking on your door.
With each outbreath, imagine the person finding the joy and satisfaction that he or she seeks. And as you breathe in, imagine the person finding relief from suffering and its underlying causes. If out of habit you find your mind just becoming disoriented, wandering, vague, re-establish your re- equilibrium of the mind with mindfulness of breathing. Stabilize, get grounded. And then return to the main practice when you feel you're quite centered.
of course you may, if you wish, deliberately focus on someone, on any one of your choice. Arousing this deep sense of caring, manifesting as loving kindness and as compassion.
then release all appearances and all aspirations and let your awareness rest in its own nature, knowing itself. So, as I mentioned, this was really the first, this together with another meditation, the very first one that I was taught when I was receiving one-on-one meditation guidance. Anilas Mai, one of our principal lamas, cherished teachers. And it's quite marvelous that it's a wonderful place to begin and then on a, just moving it right along with the path, then the culmination of the path, especially as, as it's articulated in Dzogchen, is to realize the one taste of all phenomena, the one taste of samsara and nirvana. So Dingo Genzirinbache, who passed away 20 years ago, that seems such a long time, such a long time, Only 21 years, 20 years, 1991, I think. Oh. We must be getting old. But in his marvelous book, Enlightened Courage, his commentary to seven-point mind training, he says, when you come to the very culmination of the path, you're a bodhisattva, not for long. You're just about to become a Buddha. 
I said, when you're right there on the cusp, and I think he's clearly speaking from the Dzogchen perspective, you're right there cusp, I mean, enlightenment is just perfect awakening, it's just right over there, right on next to it. He said, at that point, when you're facing your own perfect enlightenment, he says, you have no preference for samsara over nirvana. That's equanimity. That's big equanimity. So, there's a certain similarity between the beginning and the end and the path in between. Equilibrium. So, that's that. We have a few questions here. I did bring my glasses, but what I'd like to do today is alternate back and forth. Any questions or insights, and we will start. Yes, please. Just a question about language. Words like introspection, contemplation, and their relationship to words like clearly comprehend, clear comprehension, clearly knowing, and mindfulness. So am I aware and attentive of being introspective, contemplating, clearly knowing? What is the relationship with all these with this language? Very good, very good. Uh, sometimes it's simply a matter of translation. Translation. This one word in Sanskrit, samprajanya, is sometimes translated, commonly translated by Theravada Buddhists as clear comprehension. When I translate it, I translate it as introspection. I heard it recently translated as vigilant introspection, as full awareness, as vigilance, as alertness. All the same term. Right? So none of those are wrong and none of those are totally right. Um, but that's where that term comes from. I don't choose clear comprehension because I think it's much too large. I have a clear comprehension of addition and subtraction. I think I've really got it. I really understand subtraction, subtraction and addition. But that's not samprajanya at all. At all. Zero. So the samprajanya is always reflexive. That is, I can, I can, I can apply mindfulness to you, but I can't, cannot practice samprajanya focused on you because you're outside of me. I can focus samprajani on my body, my posture, my physical movements, samprajani on my speech, what I'm saying, how I'm saying it, on my mind, what's going on in my mind, but I can't do anyone else, because it's always reflexive. And that's why I call it specting intro, specting as in looking, intro as in in here, as opposed to out there. That's why I call it introspection. Introspective vigilance, or vigilant introspective, introspective vigilance, that's what the person called it. Very good translator from Sanskrit. Good translation. So that's one aspect. And I think now you're very clear on, on what that means because we've been applying it all the way through in these last 10 days of shamatha. Mindfulness is also clear. It's bearing in mind. But then when one says one contemplates, that's you now exactly what the context is. I don't know, but I know one context. And that is in the Buddha's great discourse on the four applications of mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta. One contemplates this, one contemplates that. And I'm not enough of a Pali scholar to know right off the tip of my tongue, the top of my head, oh, what, the, what the Sanskrit or the Pali, the Pali is. I remember seeing it earlier, I've just forgotten the term. But it does imply definitely something more than bare attention. It's not introspection. It's attending to something with intelligent interest. Taking it into consideration. And then contemplating it. That may include, very likely may include, discursive thinking, 
So, for example, when the Buddha in the Satipatthana Sutta goes through, I believe it's 35 body parts, you know, the brain and tissue and bone and marrow and all of that, then, and when one contemplates this, and that is, this is not looking at bare sensations at all, that's, you don't get bone marrow from attending to bare, bare, sens- bare sensations in the body. This is clearly something a visualization exercise. Reflecting upon, okay, as I go, as I comb through my body, from the hair on the top of my head down to the soles of my feet to the skin down there, the dead skin on the bottom of the feet, and everything in between, and just, and then that, and then he gave all these details. It's really like an anatomy lesson. It's what a doctor could give very effectively. And we have on all of these charts, these medical charts. That's what the Buddha was giving, is a verbal description of a medical chart of what do you see when you look inside? And you see, oh, a big chunk of brain. And then, and then just going through. And as you're going through, seeing, is there anything here? As you're really mentally attending to what is your body made of? As he said, your body is like a sack, like a burlap sack filled with different types of grain. You know, well, it's not grain, it's stuff a lot mushier than grain. I mean, just to take one organ, kind of an innocent, ordinary organ, a liver. If somebody says, we'd like to hold this liver in your hand, most people would say, I think so. <laughs> or one thing my Tibetan lamas have said, you know, when we think of the body as so pure, our own bodies especially, or we become infatuated with somebody else's body. You know? He said, consider how pure your own body is. Hold out, I'm not asking you to do this right now, but you can try it on your own leisure. Hold out your palm and spit into it. Not just, you know, just saliva. You know. And now, just tell me, would you like to lick it and take it back in again? Wash your hands first and spit into your palm. And then ask yourself, do I want to lick it? Do I want it back in my mouth? Or do I just want to wipe it? Wipe it off. Disgusting. And that's one of the cleanest things coming out of the body. Most of the things coming out of the body are not that nice. (laughs) That's one of the nicest ones. You can use your imagination about the other things. So the point there is to be reflecting upon this, to overcome the delusion of thinking that which is not really attractive. I mean, skin is skin, hair is hair, tongue is tongue. If you, if you, if somebody could actually detach the tongue, you know, some a really attractive person, and they had a detachable tongue, you know, so would you really think, oh man, I want to French kiss? I want to French kiss that one. Just, I don't think so. But when it's back in the head, you want to, oh, I, I want to. Out of the head, in the head, ah. <laughs> it's, it's overcome that kind of delusion. Overcome the delusion of anything here is really me or mine. So that takes some reflection, some, you know, some serious consideration. And that's what he means by contemplate this. Bring some insight, some understanding to it. To overcome the craving and attachment, the identification with your own body and body parts. And then as we attend inwardly, you do that with your own body. You attend outwardly to bodies of others. And then inwardly and outwardly. So that's what it means. Something like that. There's, there's hardly, 
Really, there are no references at all to bear attention in the whole Satipatthana Sutta. There's not even one, unless you kind of read it into mindfulness of breathing, which would be appropriate. So bear attention has a role. It has a role. It's very useful. But to reduce the whole of this tremendously rich and wise strategy of carefully contemplating, focusing on probing into and inquiring nature of the body, feelings, mental states, and phenomena, to reduce that all to bear attention is really a radical kind of uh, reductionism. It's not so helpful. So, somebody like that. So, let's read one. I will read one. Let's see what's coming up. Happily, the one on top is smaller. If I practice, like we did in the morning, there's a lot to do. Yeah, we went through a lot of different phases. Keep the eyes open. Yeah. Be the awareness. Say to myself, being aware, otherwise daydreaming. Sometimes watch the breath. Can I do this? Can I do it this way? Oh, like that. So, it's um, Can you do that? Sure. As I mentioned earlier, uh, is it is it appropriate? Can be can it be helpful to give yourself mental props or mental guidance? Little um, slogans is not such a good word, but so got little sound bites, sound bites of instruction. Can that be helpful? As this is here. Yes, it can. Yes, it can. Uh, and it's as I mentioned earlier, it's uh, within the nine stages. It's in the stage two. What, by what power, by what ability do you achieve the stage two where you can actually maintain continuity of the attention on the object for up to a minute at a time, at least on occasion, by the power of thinking? So that's reflecting on the practice, the nature of the instructions, what's to be remembered in between sessions, and then when you're actually doing the practice, to be there as a coach. That's a nice word. You're coaching yourself. So these, these phrases here, you know, just as you said, keep your eyes open, yeah, don't let them drift off. Be the awareness, yeah, good. But at some point, as you're moving from stage two to three, um, you really shouldn't need that anymore. And so you achieve stage three with the power of mindfulness. Right? It's very much like when you're first learning how to drive automatic transmission with the stick and the clutch and all of that. Yeah? I, I remember very vividly having to learn because my father was in the passenger seat. <laughs> and he taught me how to drive the stick shift in his Porsche, which he really loved his Porsche. And somehow he didn't, he wasn't happy when I would try to change gears without depressing clutch. I don't know. <laughs> picky, 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 you know. He'd strip as I was stripping his transmission. And so, depress the clutch, move the gear, gently release the clutch, hit the accelerator. Now clutch again, now move that, and now release gently. Keep your eyes on the road. <laughs> There's a lot to remember there. There's a lot to remember. Then, of course, as you get the hang of it, you'd never be. You know, no driver ever thinks, I'm now going to depress the clutch. You know. Then, once you learn it, you don't need that anymore. So, yeah, use it use it as much as long as it's useful. And then say, okay, thank you. And then release it. Okay? Good. Anything else coming up? Yes, over to John. I also have a sort of terminology question. Yeah. Could you talk a little more about the space of non-conceptuality and the space of non-objectivity, as you've called them, like the past two, three days? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I, I assume they're referring to the space of the mind. Yeah, I don't actually recall using the phrase space of non-conceptuality or space of... Could have. I don't remember everything I've said. Uh, it is indeed just... And you're referring to awareness of awareness practice when we're just kind of releasing, yes? Correct? I think so, yes. Yeah. 
That is, in the other practice, you're simply attending to that domain of experience that's purely mental, we'll call space of mind. It is a dhammadhatu, relative dhammadhatu, and then the thoughts and images that arise. So that's all clear. Now, in this practice, we are releasing, we're just releasing into space, but space not as an object. Now, space can be an object. Space can be something we look at. Among the samapatis, the absorptions in the form realm, what are you attending to in the first one? There's space, consciousness, nothing, and, and then neither perception nor non-perception. The first object of attention is space. So you're attending to space. That's your target. That's your sign, right? Well, not in this practice. This is not a practice of focusing on space as an object and locking onto it and developing stability and vividness. But rather, it is simply one of utterly letting go, like a, like having a, a, a pigeon coop, a pigeon cage, and then just opening the lid, and all the pigeons just go, and they're gone. And you're not attending anything. That is, there's no target. So, we invert into the luminosity and cognizance of awareness, and then we just release into no object. Now, space doesn't have much of an object to it, but to point out, just to make it very clear that space can be an object, as you and I attend, right now we can, we can attend pretty much where Tracy is, but don't look at Tracy, look at the, at the space just to the, how do you say, to the right of Tracy from your perspective. So look at that space right there, just to the right of Tracy. Look at that space. I am, from my perspective, to the left. And I am paying a lot of attention to that space. I'm seeing something. And that's space, and that's my object. We're not doing that. And so we're not taking space as an object, we're just releasing into no object, and very specifically, any thought that comes up, just release it. So you're releasing into a an absence of conceptuality, of concepts, thoughts, images, just releasing. And as you're doing so, you're gently, gently sustaining the flow of awareness of awareness. Is that clear enough? Okay, but so uh, my follow-up question would be about the releasing that um, just as you said, Alan, you have to maintain some awareness, some sense of knowing. It's so continuity. the release isn't like absolute, like really letting everything go. I mean, because we're still hanging on to something, or can we just let everything go and that sort of knowing will still be there? It's a shift of ambience. This is straight from Padmasambhava, again. And I've seen it elsewhere in Dujum Lingba. This seems to be a, a, a theme that runs through multiple uh, meditations in the Dzogchen tradition, especially in Shamatha, but you find it elsewhere. This, this oscillation of arousal and release, arousal and release. It's, it's one of those natural rhythms throughout the universe. Pulsars and the universe itself, you know, expanding and contracting. That's a pretty big oscillation, you know, into kind of a singularity and so forth. And so, so the question was again about the release. Is, is, can it really be a total yeah. release? So, it, of course, it's not a total release like, like you kind of lost it completely, you got you spaced out, but now you have, and now you know nothing. It's not a it's not a release into knowing nothing, right? It is a release into knowing something in a subtle level, and that is this is actively cultivating. This is worth lingering on a couple of minutes. This is actively cultivating, just like a little a little shrub, a little plant, cultivating till it gets stronger and stronger. Another way of knowing that we're not familiar with, and that we and you never learn it. Is never taught from preschool all the way to postdoctoral work. It's I've never even heard of it being taught, and that is all the knowing that we're we're trained in from preschool through postdoctoral work. 
always entails some subject-object duality and conceptualization. And you know you know when you articulate it. So it's all leading. It's very Aristotelian. It culminates in the articulation. Your published peer-reviewed paper, your article, your book, your lecture, your exam. It all culminates. It's Aristotelian all the way through. That it culminates in conceptualization or the verbalization coming from concepts. And so that's really our habitual way of knowing anything is lock it into a conceptual framework and know it within that context. But there's another way of knowing that we've had all, all along and it's always there, but it just doesn't get cultivated apart from the contemplative context. And that is cultivating a way of knowing that is nonverbal, that's not superimposing labels, not analyzing, not contemplating in that earlier sense, but it's just being totally present and knowing with a, an immediacy an immediacy. Now we do this. We do this. If you're not a, a chocolate connoisseur, if you're a chocolate connoisseur, then as soon as the chocolate goes in your mouth, you might be, immediately be thinking Belgian, German, Swiss, English. Forget about English. Okay. Back to the continent. You know, they know how to make chocolate. You know. And then you, you know, and you may be analyzing it as 85%, if it's dark chocolate, 85%, it's 75%. So if you're a connoisseur, bam, you're bringing in all the concepts and, all of that kind of stuff. But if you're just a person who likes chocolate, mm, that's it. You know, you know it immediately. And you may have nothing to say about it at all, but boy, did you know it. You know. So it is cultivating a type of knowing that's there even when you've lost your mind. In deep sleep. To become lucid. While resting in the substrate consciousness. Ordinary deep sleep. If you're not lucid, you don't know anything. But if you're lucid, you're knowing something. But you're knowing it not in the habitual way. It's completely enmeshed in concepts. So as you release, then you're sustaining a knowing of ever so simple knowing awareness. As you invert that, it gets brighter and brighter, sharper, sharper. But even as it releases, still gently, as if you're holding a thread between two fingers, still there's that ongoing awareness. But it's so relaxed. And then the inversion again. Okay? That'd be very useful. Very useful to cultivate that quality of knowing, making the poss- making for the possibility of falling asleep consciously, and then, even more importantly, making for the possibility of dying consciously. And that could be very useful. And if you can be resting there in the dead zone, culmination of the dying process, and with the light still on, not blackout, but light illuminating the substrate. If you can rest there, and you can actually, according to Dutrum Lingua, you, remain, you, you may remain there for hours. I think he said up to six hours. Not clear light of death. Not clear light of death. Breathing has stopped from outside. Hey, the person's dead. No heartbeat, no respiration, nada, all gone, finished. Dying process is done. If you had a Buddhist doctor, you say, yep, he's dead. You know? But you, remain, you may remain just in that dead zone for up to six hours. I think think that was it. Quite sure. Before moving on into the clear light of death. But if you can linger there and be lucidly dead and you've had some experience of Dzogchen or state of completion, then that's really, that's really a good preparation. You're doing something really meaningful. Just being dead lucidly is not transformative. 
any more than just resting in shamatha is transformative. But it's a really good preparation, and that's what shamatha is all about. It's it's, a, it's the great window. It's a great preliminary practice. You know, really, for Theravada, for Mahayana, for Vajrayana, for Dzogchen. This is the great one. So often overlooked. It's incredible. So silly. To have a serviceable mind, that might be a good preliminary practice. How could we miss that one? So, something like that. Good, we have a little bit more time. Let's see if I can read another one. Big paper, short question. I love that. What is the best way to work towards developing lucid dreaming? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yep, it's time to make a few comments about that. The beauty of the integration of the modern methods of lucid dreaming, coming from Stephen Leberge, Paul Tolai, and other researchers in the field over the last 30 years or so, with the much more ancient and much more profound practices of dream yoga, is that these modern techniques actually can make the deeper methods of dream yoga much more accessible. I've known some yogis, when I was up in there in the mountains above Dharamsala in my first long retreat, long, I mean, it's, it's silly to say long, isn't it? It's five months, and it's gone, your visa's finished. But, you know, relatively long. But uh, I've spoken with some yogis that said, oh, dream yoga? Dream yoga? Oh, that's for people who are really accomplished on the stage of generation. That means you're way out there. Right? So, and I understand that. In a way, they're right. But let's let's bring it down. Because when I was taught this, especially by Yatudamaji, then he made it inviting. Like, come, come on in. The water's fine. Come on in. You know? And so how to make this accessible, especially for people who say, but I hardly ever remember my dreams. Or I keep on having, I will have a lucid dream. I will have a lucid dream. And every single time I'm wrong. So I just keep on my telling myself, and then I know I'm going to be wrong. And so I'm saying, as I'm falling asleep, I will be lucid tonight. I know I won't, but I will be lucid, and I know I'm lying to myself. But I really will. Yeah, give me a break. <laughs> it become a real habit, you know. And so that's not enough. That's not enough. Not any more than I will be a movie star. I will be a movie star, and not even going to actor school. You know, just assuming somebody's going to pick me out of a crowd and put me in a leading role in a great movie. Not likely. So, what can we do? Strategy. The practice of lucid dreaming, which can naturally evolve into dream yoga, is very much a matter of prospective memory, exercising and developing prospective memory, looking to the future, with the anticipation of knowing something and doing something. These words are very important. Knowing something and doing something, not just one or the other. Okay. So to begin, in a way that doesn't disrupt, disrupt your night's sleep, which is very important. So first thing, don't do anything to mess with your sleep. Getting a good night's sleep is, is, is as important as getting good food. It's another kind of nourishment. So don't let mess with your sleep. But something you can do probably that won't mess with your sleep is as you're falling asleep, do so with a strong resolve, if you're interested in doing this practice. Day's finished, now looking ahead to however many hours of sleeping. Anticipate, as you know you're probably going to go unconscious, that tonight, at any time from the time that I close my eyes and fall asleep until I'm fully awake and ready to start tomorrow, at any time in between, when I sense that I'm waking up, 
I will apply introspection to recognize that process as quickly as I can. That's anticipating knowing something in the future. As just, I'm starting to emerge. And bear in mind, people wake up multiple times, six, seven, eight, outside, six, seven, eight times per night. That's normal. But so little is happening. You're in a dark room, nothing happening. So you go right back and you don't even remember having woken up. That's normal. Right? And so anticipate tonight at any time if I wake up, I will recognize that I'm waking up as swiftly as possible. That's the first thing. Recognize when you're in the process of waking up. Not after you've already wake, awakened and you're stretching and looking around and what time is it, what time is it. When you're in the process, as quickly as possible. Recognize that. And as soon as you recognize it, then do something. Be still. Do not move your body. Do not move your eyes. Physically, be still. And then do something. And then relax really deeply. And see if you can just drift right back into the dream. As you direct your attention backwards, what was the last thing you remember? What was the last image? What was the last experience you had? And you may very well find that you're just emerging from a dream. So, go back. As you're just kind of there on the cusp between waking and dreaming. Waking, dreaming, or sleeping and waking. Come back and see if you can remember the, the image that was last there. And maybe it was a sequence. Maybe it's an image before that. Maybe there's a story. Maybe there's a place. And drift back in. And see if you can slip right back into the dream from which you just emerged. And go back in lucidly. Go back in knowing that you're going back into a dream. And when you're there, know that you're dreaming. So try that. You may or may not be able to do the latter part, but you should be able to do this. That is, when you're waking up, recognize as quickly as possible, I'm waking up, and be still. And then track back. At least see if you can remember what was your last experience. And note that. And that's the first step. That's not too difficult. Right? So Try that, if you're interested. And then we can start teasing it out from there. What more can you do? But that's enough for right now. So, enjoy your meal. Get a good night's sleep. See you tomorrow.